and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. This podcast is hosted generously by 2d6.org, a wonderful website to go to for all sorts of board game news, reviews, and commentaries. That's www.2d6.org. The Longview is also generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com, one of the web's premier board game retailers. Thor and his family will be happy to try and meet all of your board gaming needs. Whether it's the newest hotness or a hard-to-find import, you can find them at Gamesurplus.com. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm going to be your host today. And today I'm pleased to be joined by... uh, Martin Griffiths. Uh, You might know him as QWERTY Martin on Board Game Geek. And the subject for our show today is going to be uh, a rather old game, but a game that has certainly seemed to have stood the test of time, and that's the game of Tigris and Euphrates. This is a game by Reiner Kinesia. It is a abstract, I, I would say, we'll see if Martin disagrees with me in a moment here, um, game of sort of uh, civilization conquest uh, set in the ancient uh, kingdom of Mesopotamia. It plays from two to four players, and it involves uh, placing tiles on a board, each of which is tied to a specific uh, type of uh, resource, or I kind of think of it more than resources as a area of civilization, perhaps the leadership of the civilization, the uh, agriculture of the civilization, the religion of the civilization, etc. And each of these um, sort of spheres of civilization, which we'll discuss in more detail later, forms sort of the your particular civilization on this map. And once these civilizations kind of come into contact, or when these civilizations are visited by pieces from other players, all sorts of interesting things can happen. Uh, This game has been around for quite a while. Um, It has recently, I think, gotten a slight boost in popularity from its release on the iOS uh, platform. And I thought it would be a nice idea to talk with Martin about this. And I want to thank you for joining me. So Martin, uh, hello and welcome to the podcast. And thanks for joining. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So one of the things uh, that, you know, I was kicking around, I saw that uh, some people had started a discussion thread for the Longview podcast, which, you know, personally I kind of found really neat, kind of flattering. I really appreciated it because it it was showing me some things that people wanted to see. You were very active on that thread talking about different types of games that you might want to see a podcast episode about. And one of the ones that came up was Tigris and Euphrates. And this is one that, you know, I've since learned from speaking to you is, is one of your favorite games. So I'd like to start off, you know, the way I usually do, which is what first attracted you to the game? What is it that caught your interest? Why do you think it was something that you wanted to play? Oh, uh, well, I think uh, I first played it in uh the beginning of 2009, I think. And obviously, it had been around for a long time before that. It came out in uh, 1997. Um, I only really got into the hobby in 2007, 2008. And I'd been doing what we all do when we start out, checking out the uh, Board Game Geek rankings. And there was this game, Tigris and Euphrates, always seemed to be quite high up there. Um, I, in my first year or two in the hobby, came across quite a few games by Rainer Knizia. Um, and really enjoyed them. I started to feel that he was a designer, that I really liked his style. And Tigris and Euphrates was 
seen as being his uh, masterpiece, I guess. So it was one that I was in, very interested in playing, but it was out of print at that time um, and quite hard to get hold of. Um, then the reprint um, came out around the beginning of 2009. So I made sure to get, get a copy of that as soon as it came out. And, uh, and yeah, the, I've gone from there, really, um, with it becoming fairly quickly one of my favorites. And, and now I would say definitely my all-time favorite game. So you said that you had explored a few of Dr. Kinesia's games. Um, for those uh, who might not be familiar with Reiner Kinesia, he's one of the more prolific game designers out there. Um, I think probably the most prolific, yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, some have kind of likened him to the Stephen King of the gaming world. Um, you know, very prolific, always putting something out. Sometimes, you know, maybe just a slight retheming or re-implementation, but often some new ideas uh, seem to pop up. Um, what is it about his games... I I actually uh, met a gentleman by the name of Ken Shoda, Ken, if you're out there listening, um, a few years ago at the WBC, and and he was a totally uh, dedicated kinesia-aholic. I mean, he he proudly told me that he had just about every game he had managed to hunt down that Reiner Kinesia had ever put out and, and loved his games. And, you know, Reiner Kinesia is one of those designers that seems to have a kind of a, a loyal sort of following in the same way that, you know, one of my favorites, Martin Wallace, does. And so uh-huh. what is it about uh, Reiner Kinesia games, you think, that seems to strike that chord with you? Has there been anything that you can identify? Uh, yeah, um, I think there's a few things. I actually made a, a gig list about this a while back, looking at some of the things that his games have in common and the things I've, I've really come to value. I think one of them is his rules tend to be pretty simple. He doesn't design absolute monster complex games. I think Tigris has a reputation for being complex, but I don't really think it is, especially compared to a lot of the games that are in the, the BGG top 10 now. Um, so I think his, his games tend to have fairly simple rules, but that doesn't mean they're simple games. Uh, they quite often have a lot of depth coming from that simple rule set. Um, I think he designs a whole, uh, obviously such a wide range of games that some of them are pretty light. He designs a lot of fillers, and I like a lot of those games too, but I think his gamers' games share that characteristic of having fairly simple rules, but but deep gameplay. Um, I think he also designs games that have quite a lot of interaction. Um, Euro games can tend to the multiplayer solitaire end of the spectrum and individual player boards and that kind of thing. And, and Kinesia rarely goes for that kind of thing. His games tend to have quite a lot of interaction and, and even conflict, as is the case in, uh, in Tigris and Euphrates. I, I think another hallmark of his games is they almost always have some randomness in, but I think he provides the players with ways to manage that. And his, a lot of his games is about managing risk and doing the best with what you're given. And that's something that I really enjoy rather than the sort of perfect information, plan 10 moves in advance, perfect strategy kind of games. Yeah, I think I would, uh, you know, like to pick up on a few of your themes there, if you don't mind. I, I think that uh, what you mentioned about randomness is something that's been percolating in my mind for a little bit. Um, even something that I'm considering trying to maybe dedicate an entire episode to, which is, you know, it, it appears to me as though a certain amount of randomness is actually quite important in game design and and can seem to 
um, almost guarantee the longevity of a game. It seems like if there is no randomness, uh, the game can tend to become scripted. I know I've, I've talked with people before, for example, about Puerto Rico, where, you know, this is a game that is very well respected. It's a game that I really enjoy, but that because it's kind of this sort of perfect information, you know what the buildings are, uh, you know, I'm talking if you're not using the expansion. Um, yeah. there, there is sort of, over time, there has become apparent these sort of optimal moves of things that you can or should do. And so, in some ways, I kind of feel that that actually limits the longevity of a game. Whereas when you have a game like Tigris and Euphrates, where, you know, you have really the complete randomness of your tile draw. This is a game where, on your turn, you're going to be drawing tiles from a bag. And you don't know, nor do you really have any control that I can think of at all over what it is you're pulling from the bag. Uh, one of the things you can do on your turn is discard uh, tiles that perhaps you don't want or that, that aren't useful to you at that moment and then draw some new ones. But no matter what you do, there's still going to be some randomness there. And some don't like that randomness, as you've indicated, but some people uh, really do find that as a hallmark of games that are, are kind of beyond the good and the great. There, there has to be a little bit of randomness, I think, is my theory, in order for the game to really have the kind of legs that Tigris and Euphrates has had. Would you uh, agree with that assessment, or do you think I'm making too broad of a generalization? I, I think it's probably something that comes a lot down to taste. I, I mean, I'm certainly on, on your side of, of that. I think most of my favorite games do have that uh, that element of randomness that means each game you're going to be facing different challenges and it's not going to go down that kind of scripted route. And, and, and for me, I think I'm a big card game player. You know, I really love card games, getting dealt the cards. You don't know what you're going to get and then doing the best with that hand of cards. I'm a much bigger fan of um, card games than something like uh, you know, chess, where a perfect information game. Um, so yeah, for me, I think definitely that randomness is important, but I guess there are people who kind of feel completely the opposite to that and, and, and they can go really deep into, into those games where all the information is there and, and that's what they enjoy is being able to plan 10, 20 moves ahead. And, and that's, uh, that's, you know, that's fine. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. The randomness is very important to me. Yes, you know, that's something that I, I, I'm inclined to continue to maybe try to explore or see what maybe some listeners have to say about that balance between randomness and, and information as to, you know, is there maybe that, that kind of perfect mix or, or some kind of a ratio that maybe we can try to discern over time as gamers to, to try to figure out what might be the best mix uh, of randomness and predictability, um, uh, you know, that, that balance between the perfect information and the randomness. The other thing right. I wanted to, to pick up on is you mentioned the interactivity in Tigris and Euphrates. And I think uh, for a game that really has gotten quite the reputation as being kind of abstract and abstracted, it really does have a tremendous amount of, of interaction, at least in my mind. I mean, I, I just played Aura and Labora with my wife last night. And, uh, you know, that's a game that I enjoy. I think I probably would rather play Lahav, but it, it is a game that I enjoy. Um, but there's not a lot of, again, it's a Euro game. Like you said, you kind of have your own little world. Uh, there's some interaction. You can utilize each other's uh, buildings, which are kind of like 
give you the, the opportunity to either gain new resources or convert resources into things that are more valuable in that game. Uh, but there's not real conflict in those games. And I, I, I think that the level of interaction and conflict in Tigers and Euphrates is something that sets it apart. Um, could you maybe, for people who aren't familiar with um, the game, uh, of Tigris and Euphrates. There are two layers of conflict. There are these internal conflicts and external conflicts. Uh, would you mind, as a person that I'd like to, you know, you definitely have more experience in this game, could you maybe explain that? Because I think that those two levels of conflict are really what drives the interaction in this game. Yeah, sure. So I actually think it's kind of unfortunate that they chose those terms in the rulebook, internal conflict and external conflict, because it just reinforces the idea that this is quite a dry and themeless game, I think. So when I teach the game, I like to call the internal conflict a coup or a rebellion, and the external conflict is a war, because there are really two ways that the players can can come into opposition. Um, you talked a bit about the way the game works, where uh, there are these different aspects of civilization. Uh, there's you know, trading, religion, um, farming, and so on. And each player has a leader that represents their civilization in that particular aspect. So you have a priest that leads the religious part of your uh, civilization. Um, but the tiles on the board, um, they don't each player doesn't have their own kingdom where their, their own leaders hang out. Uh, the leaders, your leaders can go anywhere on the board. So you can end up with kingdoms with uh, one of my leaders, one of your leaders, one of someone else's leaders. What you can't have and what causes conflict is two players having trying to have leaders of the same aspect in the same part of the board. So... If we've got a kingdom and I've got a priest in there and you've got a priest in there, then that's going to be that's going to cause a conflict. So there are two ways that that can happen. The internal conflict or coup is basically where I just pick up my leader and drop him straight into an area where you've got a leader of the same type, um, and that's resolved in in one way. Um, there's another way that a, a, that situation could come to pass, which is we've got two kingdoms on the board, each with their own leaders, and then someone places a tile that joins them together. So now suddenly we've got one big kingdom and it contains uh, two priests, say, or it could it could contain uh, two leaders of several different types all at once. And what has to happen then is that the two halves of that new kingdom have to fight to decide which leader is going to survive on the board and which one is going to be taken off. And this is one of the things that I find is really interesting about the game because, you know, I, I like your term sort of, you know, it's like a coup, you know, or it's like an infiltration. You know, I, I kind of, when I'm playing the game, I imagine that when I, I plot my merchant uh, a leader down in your city, it's like I've come in with like bargain basement prices and now I'm trying to sort of take away all of your business in your kingdom and you're going to respond and, and, you know, uh, by, by sort of having this sort of uh, mercantile kind of war within that city to try to determine who's really going to, you know, get the business of that city. And, you know, mm -hmm. the, the religious leader is like a wandering prophet who has come from my kingdom to yours and is stirring up all kinds of heresy and trouble. And then there's this <laughs> conflict uh, within that kingdom. And so one of the things that, that I really appreciate about it is, is as you described – 
when you do have these these conflicts, um, you know, you will sometimes uh, be able to, as the sort of defender, uh, drive that interloper out, or sometimes you just have to put up with them. And not only do you have to put up with them, but now that they're there and they have a foothold, they're kind of continuing to gain influence and power in your own backyard, which is kind of adding insult to injury in my mind. Uh, and then you also have this other conflict. Uh, the, they call them, I believe, the external conflicts in the in the rule book, and that's when the two kingdoms join. And I, and you know, again, it, it's kind of like okay, uh, who's who's going to kind of win out the day and be the new sort of controlling power in this this huge sort of uh, uh, kingdom. And I like the fact that it's not a winner take all. In other words. My kingdom and your kingdom could intersect, and you might win uh, the conflict uh, that is determined, again, kind of almost like by majority of tiles. You might win the conflict in three of the areas, but I still hang on there in one of them. And so I like the fact that it's not just necessarily, okay, whoever wins kicks everybody out. It's actually taken uh, in in the game terms, the conflicts are done one by one. And sometimes the results of a conflict can actually re-separate two kingdoms. It's such a violent civil war that people kind of go into their separate corners and lick their wounds. So this is this brings me to my next kind of point, which is one that I, I was going to kind of skip till later. But because of, of this conflict discussion, what do you think about the theme of the game? Because I think like listening to you describe how you envision the conflicts or me describing how I just envisioned it, you know, I'm, I'm attaching a story to it and really it, it's, it's not necessarily there. You almost have to imagine that theme because otherwise it's kind of abstract and cut and dry in the rule book. I mean, do you think there's theme in this game or no? What are your thoughts on that? I definitely think there is. I, I don't think there's theme in a kind of obvious way. I mean, kind of like you just said, I mean, the the mechanics represent quite an abstraction from the idea of this civilization growing and so on. You know, they are quite an abstract set of mechanics involving, you know, four different colors and different ways of placing tiles and, and so on. And you could certainly play it completely as an abstract game, I think. But when I'm playing, I do get some of that feeling of the story of these civilizations growing and there's only so much space on the board, you know, that it can't be too long before they're going to come to blows because, you know, they're all competing over these, uh, this same area. And, 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 and like you were just talking about with the, with the uh, revolts, you know, some leaders coming in and trying to take over. So, yeah, I think there is there is a narrative there in the game. And I think there are lots of little touches that help with that. And where actually, if you do explain the theming behind the game, it does help with some of the slightly fiddly rules. So, for example, there are the uh, treasures at the beginning of the game on certain locations on the board. And what these do in mechanical terms are... They're a, a victory point of a wild color. We haven't really talked about the scoring yet, but maybe we'll come back to that. But what these do in kind of thematic terms is they act as an incentive for kingdoms to join together because that's the only way 
you can grab one of these treasures is by joining two of them together. So they kind of represent trade routes being formed and, and this kind of thing. Um, there's actually a, a like 10 part series of videos on YouTube where Rainer Knizia is interviewed about the game and he talks about the theme a lot. And I just don't think this was a game that was designed as an abstract and then had a theme pasted on as people often accuse, uh, Knizia's games are being pasted on. I, I don't think that at all. This is a game that was designed with a theme in mind. And like a lot of Knizia's games, the way he represents that theme is is quite abstracted. Um, but the theme still comes through for me. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I'm inclined to agree with you, but I didn't at first. I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, you know, the first few times that I played the game, I really kind of felt that it was themeless. Like I, I didn't, I didn't really see it. It was just about kind of counting the number of colors of tiles that I had in each kingdom, trying to maintain my majority, and in case that uh, you know. Uh, uh, kingdoms would be connected, you know, does my leader have more support in agriculture than your leader does in agriculture in your kingdom, which is creeping slowly towards mine? Um, and, and I really looked at it as as a, a completely sort of abstract experience and kind of found it to be sort of dry. What was interesting is that, you know, after I played it a few times and lost miserably, by the way, my wife killed me at it the first <laughs> few times that we played um, to the point where I, I didn't even like the game. I was just like, oh, this game's broken. I hate <laughs> Any game that my wife beats me at regularly, I probably will claim is broken uh, because it's easier for me to say that than to actually acknowledge that she's a very good gamer. Um, in her own right. But uh, yeah, she, she really kind of taught me quite a few things about that game. And it was interesting that I didn't really see the theme until I got into the conflict. You know, I, I, I think I played it wrong and that I was trying to turtle. And one of the, the things I want to pick up on that you said that I think is really brilliant about the game is that the board, while it looks wide open at the start of the game, quickly becomes this crowded, constricted space and, you know, you really cannot turtle in the game. And I don't think the game was designed for you to turtle. And I think it was designed, as you said, with a mind for expansion and connecting and conflict to keep the game in this sort of fluid kind of a state of high interaction and highly dynamic. And so, you know, I really kind of grew to appreciate the theme over time. Um, what was your experience with that? In other words, did you connect with this theme as a fan of, of, of Reiner Kinesia's games? Did you connect with the theme right away, or was it something that grew, or what, what, what do you think? Well, I'd have to say theme is not the biggest thing for me in a game anyway. I'm, I'm not someone who, who plays a game because I really want to be immersed in a story or, or whatever. You know, I, I think the mechanics are more important to me than the theme but that but then there's this thing where i still don't really like to play a lot of complete abstracts and maybe that comes back to the the randomness thing because a lot of the abstract games are also perfect information games but i do like to have some some sort of theme i know what you mean about it not really coming through at first and i remember my first game of of tigris i was i was just completely bewildered i didn't really know what to think after the first game it takes at least that whole first game just to sort of get a grip of how the mechanics actually play out and what 
taking certain actions is going to do in terms of the way the board changes and, and why you would be doing certain things. And, and I guess I didn't really think much about theme at all at that stage. So yeah, I think it, I think it's something that has grown over time. And, and it was interesting watching those videos um, as well to see, um, see Knizia talking about the theme. And, and then, yeah, as I played it more, you sort of appreciate all the little touches that, that are there with things like, you can a civilization can build a monument and that's a really cool thing to have because it spits out victory points every turn and it's like this great wonder the civilization is built but it also weakens that civilization because the tiles you play to turn into a monument can no longer be used to defend you um in wars and you know that kind of represents the fact that putting all this effort into building a monument and uh and that aspect of civilization has taken away the effort that you could have been putting into military defenses. So I think that's another little, just a little thematic thing that you don't appreciate at first. Right. And, you know, I, I think uh, you're right. You know, we probably should talk about scoring because, you know, when I think about Tigris and Euphrates and this particular game design, I think about the scoring system. I mean, this this is a scoring system that I kind of have come to think of as distinctly, uniquely Kinesia. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there are these different colors of tiles that we've referenced for those who aren't familiar with the game. And basically, um, if you have a leader on the board... Um, somewhere in, in, in some kingdom and he is uh, in that kingdom there are tiles of that color um, you are going to be able to gain these little kind of scoring cubes um, for yourself okay so not for that particular kingdom but for yourself as the player you have these different leaders sometimes they're all in your kingdom sometimes they're spread out all over the board and the, the way the game works is that your score is the lowest of the number of these colored cubes that you collect. So uh, this is another kind of a really interesting mechanic to me because it forces you not to specialize. That's, that's number one, at least in my mind, from a mechanical perspective. You can't just build an overwhelming majority in one area and expect to ride that to victory, it's not going to happen. You're actually going to be judged based on your weakest area, which I I think is really kind of brilliant. That was, to me, you know, you talked earlier about the fact that you think that um, uh, the simplicity or elegance of the rule sets in a lot of uh, Reiner Kinesia games is something that is attractive to you. And this is one of the things that uh, I really appreciate because rather than having this sort of weird, obtuse rule set with all of these, you know, exceptions and subsections about scoring and how you get points, it's quite simple. You know, you're going to score points in these categories, and whatever your lowest score is, is your score for the game. And with that one simple rule, it drives much of the decisions, as far as I'm concerned in the entire game as far as what am I going to do as a player because it's not going to behoove me to continue to collect red cubes if I've got 12 red cubes and I've only got three green uh, you know my my weakness is green and I got to find a way to bump up green or I'm more than likely going to lose the game and you know this is where those monuments come into play too because monuments are wonderful they spit out as you said these automatic victory point cubes uh, and every monument is made of two different colors 
and the cubes that you are eligible to get if that monument is is there and matches the the color of your leader you're going to get those every turn so what you're going to find is you're going to end up with this flood of cubes of those colors from your monuments coming in but you might still only have three green and it doesn't matter if you can't bump up the green um how much of the decision space you know i always like to talk about the decisions that you have to make in a game martin how much of the decision space in this game do you think is driven by that scoring mechanic i think uh yeah i think that's absolutely the key thing that's uh, driving what you're trying to do through the game you're always conscious of which color you're lagging behind in and thinking you know how am i going to how am i going to score in this color and often it's because the tiles you've drawn have just worked out to be uh you haven't had many greens so far in the game so you haven't seen many opportunities so then you have to be more creative and start thinking well maybe i can get into someone else's kingdom that's already they've already built a green monument over there and I can come in and use my red tiles to kick them out or um you know there are lots of actually lots of different ways of scoring points beyond just simply placing tiles on the board so i think that that that's where the really interesting decisions come from is well i'm struggling to score points in this color because i haven't had the tiles what can i do what can i do instead um and i think that's really yeah i think that's really the key part of the game for me and i think it's that that simplicity though that that makes it so compelling um you know it, it's just something that works because it's so simple um do you find other games uh i know we're talking about tigers and euphrates but do you see that same simplicity i mean obviously you see it in ingenious uh, ingenious mm-hmm. almost has the exact ingenious to me is almost like tigers and euphrates stripped down to it's core scoring mechanic, and that's it. That's the whole game. Yeah. Um, but do you see that same kind of simplicity in other games? And if so, which ones? Hmm. Um. I'm trying to think. You know, what about Medici? Uh, uh, Medici or Medici? I'm not exactly. Medici. Yeah. Medici. I mean, that's um, the the thing that makes the scoring in Medici so so tricky and also so simple is that it's an auction game but you bid with victory points, basically. You don't have money, and you're trying to convert it into victory points. Each, each round, you're just assessing, I'm going to buy this thing. Um, how many victory points is it going to make me? And so, so how many am I prepared to, to spend on it? You know? So it's quite simple in that respect. There's no, um, no conversion of different resources going on there. Right. Um, so maybe that's a, a, a kind of a, a thread is, is this sort of simple rule set, simple um, sort of mechanics, but a rich kind of deep gameplay. Um, would you say that's a fair assessment of Tigers and Euphrates? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, like I said at, uh, near the beginning, that's the thing that really appeals to me about it. Um, I, I think it doesn't feel simple at first. The first, um, the first two or three games you play, it feels really hard work and, and, and just trying to get your head wrapped around it. And that's why it's a game that I enjoy much more when I can play it with a full table of people who've gone past that stage already and, and, and really understand the moves they're making and why they're making them and, and, and what they're going to do to the overall state of the game. Um, but yeah, I think... Once you 
break through that that initial steep part of the learning curve there's there's just so much um replayability there because of the you know the randomness and just the different way the the board will build up each time um it's kind of amazing to me how different you can the games can be you can have a game that's just pretty much all out uh, war from the start and no one gets the chance to build a monument and there's conflict after conflict and you can get some games where it is a bit more peaceful at first maybe a couple of players have their own little kingdom off in the corner but you can never let that go on for too long because once once players have uh, once the players built a monument and they're getting all these points churning out you kind of have to do something about it so that's another way that Knizia has kind of built an incentive for conflict into the game um you talked about the the turtling and the fact that it's not really a game in which you can you can turtle and i totally agree with that and and one thing i like about it is a lot of multiplayer games with conflict in really what you want to do is be the guy who doesn't get involved in the conflict and have a couple yeah. of people fight it out and destroy each other while you just sit off to one side and laugh at them but the problem with that in in Tigris is conflict is where a lot of the points come from. So if a couple of guys are going at it over on one side of the board, one of them is going to get, be getting a bunch of points. Maybe both of them are going to be getting a bunch of points. And and you're going to be only accumulating points more slowly. So that's, uh, that, that's I think, an, a really interesting part of the game too. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Um, you know, you, you, you seem to uh, always gain more from messing with other players than you do by sitting there by yourself. And, and I hadn't really thought of that, but as soon as you said it, 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 it does ring true. So, again, it's another example. You've got the, the confines of the board as one sort of a, a factor that pushes interaction. Uh, you have this sort of scoring system that necessitates movement and interaction. And uh, you also have this sort of risk management, as you mentioned, with the monuments. And now you have this, this whole other layer that you're talking about there, which is the the fact that you often gain more through conflict than you will just by sort of idly sitting by. And that, that's, a, that's an excellent point, um, which, again, just kind of... Uh, builds the reputation of this game as an extremely dynamic game. Um, I, I can't think of any kind of, of abstract-ish kind of game that I've played that feels that in-your-face and interactive. So I think I would, I would have to completely agree with you there. Um, I also wanted to pick up, Martin, on something you just talked about. You know, you said uh, with the number of players, you know, what would you consider to be uh, the optimum number of players, number one? And number two, how would you describe, if you have experience with different play, uh, player counts, two, three, and four, do you think the game uh, is vastly different depending on the number of players? What has what your experience shown you about these things? Um, well, this is uh, something I was thinking about because I knew I was going to come on the show and you were going to ask me about that. And and actually, the vast majority of the face-to-face -face games I've played have been with four players, which is the maximum. And so that's kind of what I'm used to. So I think other things I have to, you know, they feel, they feel I, I judge them relative to that. So I started playing, well, I played some two-player games, quite a few on um, the... Board Game Geek uh, play by email kind of setup they've got, and 
also uh, some on uh, on the iOS as well. So I played a few two-player games now. And then just in preparation for coming on the show, I thought oh, I should try some three-player games on uh, on uh, iOS as well and uh, and see how that compares. I mean, I think with four players, you get all those things we've just been talking about at their greatest. You know, the the crowded board, all these uh, all these incentives forcing you into conflict. You get conflict quite early on, and it doesn't really let up till the end of the game. With two player on the regular board that comes with the game, I feel it's a little bit too big for two players. Um, so it can take a bit too long for the conflict to get started. And you lose a bit, I think, by it just, just having that one opponent. So, you know, all, all the conflicts are just you against him. You know, there's, I think there's more interesting dynamics if you have more than two players. It's not a bad two-player game, though. And I think uh, I've played a few times on Board Game Geek with the variant board that somebody designed, which tries to solve some of those problems. So it's it's a smaller board. You take some tiles out of the bag at the start of the game, too, because that's another one of the, the ways the game can end is by the tile bag running out. And the two-player games I've played with the regular board and the full tile bag sometimes feel like they just go on a bit too long. Not in terms of just time spent playing, but in terms of the arc of the game, it feels like sometimes it goes on past the stage at which it's already fairly clear who's won. Um, the three-player games were interesting, and I think it kind of just, well, as you'd expect, sat somewhere between the two. And actually, I think I'd quite like to try some more three-player games face-to-face now, because you just had that little bit more breathing space at the start of the game before the conflict started, where you could maybe build a monument, get something set up. Um, it wasn't quite so in your face right from the start. So, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to play more three player actually. But I think for me, it's just a fantastic four player game for players who like conflict and like to get in each other's faces and and go at it right through the game. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is definitely a game that uh, you have to have a bit of a thick skin for, and uh, I, I think that's you know one of the reasons I struggled with it in the beginning is that I. Uh, like you, I kind of came across this game early uh, in board gaming, and uh, my wife is is very adept at picking up on strategies and picking up the general sort of uh, mechanisms and general strategies of the game more quickly than I am. And so, uh, you know, she she would just completely hammer me, or or I would make a move, or I would connect two kingdoms, you know, rubbing my hands together, thinking, ha ha ha, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna really win out on this one, and. Uh, she would remind me, no, 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 did you see this over here? And I, I would completely lose. And, you know, I, I got frustrated early on playing it. Um, and, you know, my skin wasn't as thick as it is now. You know, it, it, it's it's something that, you know, I think you're right. I think you have to have some players who are comfortable with the sort of in-your-face aspect of the game because it really is kind of a brutal game. You know, you can yeah. be happily have this little engine churning, uh, you know, pumping out cubes every turn, and you're just happy as a clam, and then all of a sudden someone will do something 
uh, you know, that surprises you because, you know, a lot of these conflicts you can uh, make predictions on where you think the danger areas are based on uh, leaders in other kingdoms, the number of tiles of uh, that matching sphere for that leader, and you're like, okay, I'm all right here. But one of the, the key uh, uh, mechanisms in the game is that when there is a conflict, this sort of external conflict, or even the internal ones, you have the opportunity to play tiles from behind your screen that, that are hidden. So it's hidden information. And, and so you can be reasonably sure, you think, but then someone can come out with, uh, a whole bunch of tiles that will swing a conflict one way or the other, and it can be particularly devastating. So I, I, I agree that you have to, um, you know, definitely have a thick skin. Um, one of the other things I want to pick up on, though, uh, that I want to throw out there to you is I would be curious uh, what your experience would be, Martin, um, and maybe this is something we can post on the Guild as, as you play more and as I maybe try this out more. I'd be curious what other people who might be listening think, this is one of the only conflict games, though, that I can think of. Heavy interaction built around conflict where you can play a three-player game and it doesn't ever feel like it's the beat-up-on-the-leader thing. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of three-player games that have a lot of conflict seem to fall into... I mean, this is what you know Martin Wallace has, has talked about extensively and has, has, has tried, I think, to deal with and on many occasions is... When you have conflict in a three-player game, there does seem to be this tendency to say, oh, well, uh, you know, Sarah's in the lead, so why don't you and I work? We'll knock her down a few pegs, bring her down. You and I will, will, will kind of gain some benefit. Maybe we'll do a little negotiating, and, you know, we'll bring everything back to par. And then, you know, three turns later, you know, Paul is now ahead, and now me and Sarah will look at each other and say, you know, well, let's, let, let's bring him down a little. In Tigris and Euphrates... I think because um, I don't seem to have that experience. Like, it doesn't seem to be a game where you gang up on the leader. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that, but I'm not sure. You know, I haven't played it enough to be sure. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Do you have any any thoughts as far as uh, whether or not you've experienced, when you have played three-player, did you get that beat-up-on-the-leader feeling or no? Um, Well... As, like I was saying, the, the three-player games I've played have been on um, iOS and, and actually against the uh, AIs. And, you know, you can never... I just don't get quite the same feeling of it playing against uh, AI plays. You know, I just kind of think of them as just one entity. You know, it's, it, when you're playing face-to-face, you know, it's your friends. You know who you're playing against. You know who's attacked you. You know... Who, who you want to target. I don't get so much of that feeling when I'm playing against the, the AI, so it's kind of hard for me to say that much about about the three-player game. But I think you're, I think you're right. It doesn't really feel like a out-and-out bash-the-leader game. Um, and maybe one thing we could get into... Uh, at some point is is about the scoring and whether whether the scoring is is open or closed because there's been a lot of talk about that but i mean i think partly it's hard to bash the leader because because of the scoring system we were talking about you know if i need a particular color it's not perhaps going to benefit there's there's perhaps going to be no way i can attack the leader while advancing that color you know we're not talking about just 
a kind of straight up one dimensional score where I bash you and increase my score. You know, I might, I might bash you and increase my green score, but actually that's not helping me at all. So it doesn't tend to be an out and out bash the leader situation in my games. No. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. I think you, you hit it there. That was kind of where I was going with it was was that idea of a lot of times in, in a conflict driven game, just beating up on someone will advance your own cause and that's not always the case in this game. There, there's also the, the, the added element of I may really want to uh, you know, ba- uh, beat up on another player who I believe is in the lead or who I know is in the lead, again, depending on the open-closed scoring thing, which I'd love to talk about as soon as we're done with this. Um, but I don't have the tiles to do it. It's, it's not really something that I can even really do. You know, it's, 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 it's not within my ability at the present time in that game to knock you down or replace your leader with my leader. And so, therefore, it, it doesn't seem to encourage the bash the leader that so many other games do. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm thinking of that as a strength, uh, you know, on, in my opinion. I'm thinking, you know, that's definitely a strength of this design is that it seems like it plays very well with three um, just like it does with four, at least in my mind. Uh, the two-player game to me feels very chess-like, probably because you do have more time to kind of uh, get yourself sort of set up and situated before uh, you know you, you, you go into this sort of all-out attack mode as the board shrinks. You know, you're almost guaranteed to get more treasures, it seems, in the two-player game because you're going to be able to make uh, those links at least more quickly and more peacefully. Uh, I actually find in the two-player game with uh, uh, the, the Mayfair edition with the map with the river, um, that, that the water spaces become a sort of area of contention in the two-player game um, that, that I kind of find sort of compelling. But again, I, I definitely prefer it as the three and four. So mm-hmm. I, I'm right on board with you there. But I, I'm kind of curious you know, if we can maybe uh, see what other people think in some, some forum posts or threads about this idea of is this really a, a great example of a three-player conflict game. Now let's go back to your scoring comment. And I'd like to actually circle back to what you were talking about with the uh, scoring, with whether scoring is is open or whether it's closed. Because as I was talking about the Bash the Leader thing, I'm actually sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, is scoring hidden or is scoring open? I'm trying to remember. I know on the iOS I can see, but I seem to remember keeping the cubes behind your screen when I was playing. Um, so, I, 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 you know, I was kind of thinking, yeah, I'm trying to remember whether scoring is really open or closed in this. What what do you feel about the scoring? What's the optimal way to do it, do you think, in your opinion, for Tigers and Euphrates, open or closed? Um, I played most of my face-to-face games, almost all of my face-to-face games with closed scoring because that was what was in the rule book. That's the way I learned the game. That's the way I've been teaching the game. Um, and then the iOS app came along, and that was open scoring right from the start. And I started to really like the open scoring and just feel that I was much more in control. Um, I knew not only what what my weakness was and what I needed to do to to improve that. Um, but also, you know what the other players' weaknesses are. And so you can be a bit more 
targeted in your attacks. And maybe that does allow a bit more of, of, of pulling back the leader sometimes. Um, but it just means, yeah, I just, I just feel that little bit more information maybe does add to the depth of the game. Um, but it's not all positive, I don't think. And, and I think uh, the reason some people like the close scoring is it keeps the game moving a bit faster, maybe, because you're not trying to process quite so much information. You just kind of go with the thing that's going to improve your own score and don't worry uh, so much about about what the the other players' winkses are. Um, I think, in a way, the perfect for me would be just somewhere halfway in between, maybe. And you do kind of get this a bit in the face-to-face game because there are small cubes which represent one point in each of the colours, and there are also big cubes that represent five points in each of the colours. And there aren't all that many of the small cubes. So quite often people are needing to make a trade, and you can kind of just keep an eye on that. Oh, he just traded in five green for a big green. Maybe, you know, so he's doing pretty okay in green. I don't need to worry you know, maybe I don't need to attack him in that colour or, or whatever. So I, I quite like that kind of semi-open. I wonder if you could maybe even formalise that and say, you know, each time you get five small ones, you've got to trade them in. You know, you can't try and be sneaky with it and keep a horde of single ones. Because for me, that gives you that sort of compromise between you don't know everything, you can't um, get into analysis paralysis thinking of the, the perfect move, but you're not totally blind either. Um, it, it's kind of the other thing I don't like about the open scoring um, is with the game end I mentioned, with, with the bag being completely emptied of tiles, and also you mentioned that it's possible to take an action to swap uh, up to your entire rack of six tiles. So one thing that can happen right at the end is one player can just use their turn to just swap their tiles twice and end the game. And if the scoring's open, obviously you know you can do that just and you're completely certain that you're going to win. And that just feels a bit anticlimactic to me. And I hate when the uh when the AI does that to me on the phone. I'm like, oh I lost but didn't even you know, didn't even have the chance. Um whereas with the close scoring someone can still end the game that way but they have to be pretty confident that they're winning um and if they end the game by swapping tiles and they're not winning then they're going to look pretty silly and that kind of puts people off (laughs) using that tactic a bit um because you don't want to be that guy no no you don't want to be that guy at all yeah you know i'd add a couple things to that um you know the first thing that i'd add is that uh, i i think if you're looking to keep all the players engaged in the game uh, the close scoring really does work because of that uncertainty that you mentioned. You know, there's always that hope that, you know, maybe my, you know, eight lousy blue cubes is going to be enough to win this game. Um, so, you know, I think that that uncertainty can keep everybody involved. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment of, uh, you know, the closed kind of scoring keeps that analysis paralysis from creeping in. You know, you're not trying to you know, uh, uh, calculate the optimal move, uh, not only for yourself, but based on every other player, every single turn. So I think that's a brilliant point. Uh, the other thing, uh, that, that I would add is it seems to me as though this open closed scoring though is a perfect way 
to deal with the debate over the randomness issue. I, I think if you are a player who prefers more information, uh, more, you know, sort of that perfect information game a la Puerto Rico or maybe Kalos once the game started and, and the tiles have come out, um, you know, then, then you probably would want open scoring because that's going to give you much more information to work off of and make you much more comfortable as a player. Whereas if you're a player who maybe likes a little more randomness and doesn't mind some surprises towards the end, you're probably going to prefer the hidden, you know, or the closed scoring. So I think there's room for both of those. Um, do you, is the hidden scoring is, or, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the uh, is this an official variant now for the scoring, both the open and the the closed scoring, or is this just no, something I, that has developed over time? Um, I mean, I, I think the rules that in the the box have always been close scoring. Right. Um, I think this issue always comes up because it's perfectly trackable information. So the argument always goes, you know, well, I could write it down on a pad of paper or, you know, I could have a perfect memory. So we should just make it open. But in practice, I certainly can't. No, neither can I. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure no one I'm playing with can either. So, um, yeah, but obviously with the board game geek implementation and the ios implementation that's um they well actually the board game geek one you can choose open or closed I'm, i think you probably can on on ios as well i think you um, can yeah I, i'm not positive but i'm pretty sure you can um i'd have to look at it again but i seem to recall that that was an option yeah um, okay, so we've talked about the theme. We've talked a lot about the sort of depth uh, of the strategy in this game and, and, and the fact that it's not going to be readily apparent what is the best thing to do on your first few plays. You know, it definitely takes a few plays to wrap your mind around this game and to understand the way in which the conflicts work. And in particular, for me at least, I don't want to speak for you or anybody else, but it was that notion of uh the 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 order in which the conflicts is resolved in an external conflict um it can have a huge impact on how the overall sort of war plays itself out and that took me quite a while to wrap my mind around but i think it's one of those things that uh speaks to the sort of uh strategic opportunities in the game um, you know, if you can manipulate that in the correct way, you can kind of get in there and, and get yourself involved in a war that's going to do you some good, but also get you out of there and separate those kingdoms before uh, you, you have uh, a lot of harm come your way uh, from your opponent. So I, I really appreciate that part of the game. Um, but let's talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, just for a couple minutes about the randomness, because uh, one of the criticisms of the game is the randomness, is the randomness of the tile draw. And I have to be honest, as much as there are things about this game that I like, um, the, the, the tile draw can be maddening. It can be uh, a truly, truly just maddening because... You know, you can even basically spend your whole turn um, swapping out your tiles, which, you know, to my mind, I could be wrong. And, and if I am, I'm hoping you'll tell me. I, I, I have a feeling. I don't know if it's suboptimal, but it feels suboptimal to me. It's like I only get to do a couple things. And for one of them to be just flush tiles in order to pick some others and hope I get lucky and get something that I really want almost feels suboptimal to me. Um, so I, I, I don't do it as often, maybe as I should, 
Um, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I get that frustration that people are talking about in the randomness of the game. Um, wh- what do you feel? I mean, is, is, I know we both in principle agree that randomness can keep a game fresh. But in this game, the randomness can have just such a huge impact on it that it can be off-putting. What, what are your thoughts on that? I would say, yeah, I agree with you that swapping all your tiles, I mean, yeah, it's definitely suboptimal. You, you don't want to be doing it if you can possibly avoid it. I try not to do it more than a couple of times in a game, certainly. I would say the number one thing I've learned that's made me better at the game as I've played it more is finding ways to cycle your tiles as much as possible without actually having to take the swap tile option. And what I mean by that is what you really want, although the balanced scoring system might indicate that you want a tile rack that's got kind of every color there and you've got opportunities to score in each of the different colors, that's actually not what you want behind your screen at all. What you really want is an asymmetric distribution of tiles. You want like four or five of the same color because that is power because you have strength that the other players don't know about and you can use that to find somewhere on the board to exploit those tiles and go and win a conflict that you by rights they would think you shouldn't be winning that so you know you might dump your green leader down in some little pokey kingdom next to this guy's big kingdom and he tries to wipe you off and then you reveal all these tiles from behind your screen and suddenly you're the you're, you're the one with the five green points and uh uh, and that's that's a great thing to pull off. So I think what you want to do is find opportunities to use a bunch of tiles at once. And that what that means is that you're drawing more tiles over the course of the game. And the more tiles you draw, the more that you're get, giving yourself that opportunity for the, the randomness to, to even out. Um, so I would say that the game is about making, it's about managing that randomness like a lot of, Kinesia games are, and what you need to be doing is just drawing more tiles and trying to get those asymmetric opportunities and then exploiting them. Excellent. Well, thanks for that uh, uh, insight because that's something that, uh, you know, I, I, I think I've tried to do in practice, um, you know, as far as getting that sort of what I feel or, or hope is going to be this overwhelming force behind my screen. But the problem is, is that I really need it in blue. And all I get is black or all I get <laughs> is green. And so, you know, again, that's, you know, but that's that's part of the game is, is as you said, that kind of, all right, so do I flush the green tiles that I don't need in the hope that I get blue? Um, you know, because I, I don't say I don't want green because I'm already strong in green and in scoring cubes, right? Or do I make a play with the green anyway? Um, you know, because it's, it's not going to hurt me to gain more green cubes. Um, and it might actually hinder you, uh, as, as the player that I'm attacking, maybe, you Mm -hmm. know, that's something that would be helpful to me in that it hurts you. Uh, but it also helps me, you're saying, uh, because it's now going to allow me to draw a bunch of of new tiles and hopefully get some of those blues that I so desperately need. So, uh, I, I think that's a really interesting point. And I appreciate you sharing that sort of strategy tip because, you know, that's something that, again, I, I don't think is, is readily apparent when you're playing the game. Um, it's difficult to, you know, let go of, of tiles sometimes or, you know, you don't want to make that suboptimal move 
of you know flushing your tiles. It reminds me of a game I was playing uh, uh, today. Uh, San Juan um, was playing that with my son and my wife, and we were teaching that game to him today. And my wife kind of made a comment that like you know he burned his entire hand of cards to put out a silver smelter, which is a, a building in this game that will produce you know silver that is quite valuable and it helps you in terms of the game. And she actually kind of praised him. She's like, you know, I'm always holding my cards. I'm always not wanting to use them, you know, because I like them. And so I'm trying to build up this ridiculous hand of cards and worrying about it. Whereas he just, he's like, oh, I need five cards here. Bam. And he just kind of threw them (laughs) on the table and built his silver smelter. And, uh, you know, uh, he didn't have a problem with it. You know, he wasn't overanalyzing it. He was using what he had as resources rather than trying to hoard everything. And maybe that's that's kind of a, a connection to what you're talking about, which is if you have those tiles, just use them instead of trying to either get yeah. rid of them or swap them or, or or do something else. You know, just actually use them. So that's something I'll have to keep in mind. Um, are there any kind of pitfalls in this game or, or any things that you don't like about this game that you wish you could change? If you had Dr. Kinesia's ear and you could whisper in it and tell him, look, you know, this game will be better if you do this. What, what would you say to him? Is there anything that you would suggest? Yeah, I think there's one thing and this is something that's been discussed quite a lot as well. And it's about the, um, the turn order, basically, and the and the way the game ends. Um, the game doesn't. A lot of games have some mechanic where everyone's going to get an equal number of turns. Uh, Tigris and Euphrates doesn't have that. You know, it ends either when there's only two treasures left on the board, or when the tile bag runs out, and whoever's turn it is when that happens. That's it. It's over. Um, what that can mean is that if you're the first player you're probably going to get more turns. Um, and if you're the last player, you're most of the time going to get one turn less. And one turn can be quite a big difference in Tigris and Euphrates, especially towards the end if you know you have a bunch of monuments up and if you get to your turn, you'll be able to score from them. But if you don't, you won't. And it can be pretty frustrating if you're the fourth player to have the game end just just the turn before you and then you don't get to do the fantastic move you had planned that was going to pull out the win and um and there's no real there's there's no real compensation for that advantage so it's it's just better to be the first player and not only because you'll probably get an extra turn but also you get first pick Mm -hmm. of where to start off on the board as well and and actually although the game goes away from the script very quickly there are generally two or three well-recognized good starting positions that people will try and grab and if you're the fourth player you're kind of left with something less appealing and it seems surprising for Knizia that he didn't um because he's so good at this sort of thing so it's surprising to me that he didn't do something to adjust for that like maybe the initial setup goes in reverse order or something, you know, kind of like a Settlers of Catan type scenario where you have some way of balancing those factors so that although the fourth player might get a turn less, they're going to get best position on the board at the start or or something like that or giving... um, Extra tiles or or something. Yeah, Yeah. you know, just something, something to to balance that out. And, And there have been... 
uh, posts on Board Game Geek talk, looking at stats and showing that there is a lower win rate. It's too bad, actually, that the iOS doesn't track that stat because I, I probably played you know, over 100 games on there, and I'd be quite interested to know how my win percentage differs from first, second, third, and fourth, playing against the same AI every time. That would be that would be quite interesting for me to to see that. Yeah, no, I agree, um, and I and I do also agree. I think it's unusual that there isn't some sort of compensation, um, you know. But I I do kind of remind myself that you know, as far as as Euro kind of games go, this is one of the earlier ones. I mean, we're talking what 1997, right? Mm-hmm. And and I kind of think of you know like El Grande, which I believe was 1995. I mean, you know these these are sort of the games that you know we sort of look to almost as granddaddy. Uh, sort of games, you know, the the, the elders uh, that that uh, so many games have been based on, and but you know, and so many games right now do have some sort of um, compensation mechanism, exactly as you're describing, where you're either going to get more money, say, in a game if you're the last player as opposed to the first player, or you know, you you get more resources um, if you're later in the turn order, or as you said, the reverse kind of. You know, whoever is last gets to pick first or something. Um, and, I, and I am surprised, you're right, that, that there's really nothing that can be done to mitigate that. It would seem to be, in game terms, relatively simple to try to address that. And, and I think it could very easily be addressed by either tiles or actions. You know, I think, for example, of uh, innovation, where in innovation, the first player only gets one action yeah. instead of two. Um, and, and even if you did something like that, where, you know, the first and second players only get one action on the first round, but the, you know, third and fourth players each get two or, you know, maybe some extra tiles or, or something of that nature it would probably go a long way towards uh, mitigating a little bit, at least, uh, if not completely, that first player advantage. Um because clearly there's something going on there with it because there, as you said, there has been a lot of talk about it. There has been a lot. And, and I wish that you could track that. I think that's a really grand idea. Um, and, and, you know, and I wonder if it's something that he's considered. Um, other than that sort of first player advantage, last player disadvantage that you're talking about, um, oh, uh, to go back to that, also what you suggested I think is a very elegant solution as well, which is just make sure everybody has the same number of turns. Um, you know, and that would at least give the opportunity to those last players to make that either the game ending crushing blow or to have the last turn to try to do something, you know, to pull out a win. I think that would be another way to try to address that as well. So I agree with you there. Um, is there anything else that you can think of? I often try to ask people, what do you attribute the longevity of this game to? Why do you think this game? that was made so long ago, at least in modern board gaming terms, uh, you know, where it seems like if something's older than a year, it's yesterday's news. Mm-hmm. What, what makes you, what, what do you attribute the longevity of this game to? I mean, I think to me, the thing that's really impressive about this game is that it actually feels kind of timeless to me. Like I feel like a lot of euros feel like products of their time and, you know, themes, come and go each year, you know, we're going to have wine games one year and, and city building games the next or whatever. And, and, and Tigris for me, it just kind of sits outside all of that. And it just, it feels almost like a game that could be thousands of years old, you know, that could have been 
rediscovered in some excavation or something. You know, it just it just has this amazing classic feeling to it. it. Just and I don't know any other game that feels like that. It just feels special to me, and I think that a lot of people feel the same way about the game. And that you know, I ha- I have a lot of friends who really really love the game too, and 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 that's great because it means I can get those games a bit with the experienced players that are, that are what I really want the most. So, yeah, I, I, I just think it's a really special game. Um, and it's sad to me to see it slowly slipping down the ranks. You know, I think it's down to, like, number 20 or something. It's in the, 19. Uh, yeah, it's 19. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now because as you were talking, I was looking it up and peeking at it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, but still, when you consider it's 1997 and it's still the the number 19 ranked board game, I mean, that's nothing to uh, sneeze at. Oh, absolutely. Um, that that that's an incredible accomplishment. But I I would like to pick at that thread uh, of what you said there, though. That this idea that it felt like a game that you that that might have been found in a in an excavation somewhere in in you know Mesopotamia or in India or whatever. Um, and and I think I agree with you there. And so what I'm trying to figure out is why, like why does it feel that way and and the only thing that pops into my mind is it goes back to the very one of the very first things you said about this game which is the gameplay is quite complex but the rules are not the rules are very simple um once you get a handle on the conflicts and the way treasures work and 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 things of that nature it's it's a pretty straightforward game and the depth does not come from a convoluted rule set the depth comes from the interaction and the gameplay itself. So do you think that that might be why this game feels so timeless? I mean, you think about the traditional kind of games that are really quite old. And I mean, you know, chess, for example, once you learn how each piece moves, that's it. You know, you you, you really, you can play that game. You're not going to be any good at it, but you can play it. And Tigris and Euphrates kind of reminds me of that in a lot of ways. It's like, okay, I'm going to put these tiles on the board, or I'm going to move this leader from here to there, or I can do one of each of those things, or I can flush my tiles. There you go. And and yet, so it it doesn't take a lot of time to learn how to play the game, but playing it well, you know, you also keep talking about this, oh, I like playing it with experienced players. You've brought that up a few times. And so, you know, this seems to be a game that really, you know, is at its best when you're playing with people who know how to play it and who understand the depth. Would you say that's true as well? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, I played I played a game fairly recently where... Uh, three of us had played before and we were teaching the other player and it just doesn't feel the same at all because you're having to explain the the different situations to them and maybe let them take things back and mm-hmm. you know they're they're just having you know people need to learn the game and they're having that learning experience but it's 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 just a really different feeling when you just sit down with three or four players who know what they're doing the rules are not a barrier anymore if I make a move, uh, you know why I'm, I might be doing that. Uh, you can start seeing the, the threats. Um, and, and if you know those opponents well, you know, you get to get to know how people play. And yeah, I mean, that, that's, I think that is a mark of a, of a great game that it has 
you know, I think a truly great game, you probably can't play it really well the first time you play it um, because there's probably not enough really going on in the game if, if you can just pick it, up, pick it up and play it perfectly the first time. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, as a matter of fact, there's a uh, episode that uh, uh, the, the the episode that was released right before this one on 18xx kind of games, that whole family of games. Um, Eric Brocious and uh, Joe Huber they they were they were talking with me about you know the fact that uh, it, it takes a long time to even really become competitive in those games, and that that learning curve and and sort of the experience of learning the game uh, is valuable, number one, in its own right, in that, you know, it's a journey. It's something that takes effort and that uh, for that effort, you get rewarded. Uh, I've kind of used that phrase a lot of that return on investment. You get rewarded uh, by becoming actually better at the game. And, you know, they said the Mm -hmm. same thing you just did, which is if it's a game that anybody can sit down and play the first time and win, that maybe that does say something about the game. Now, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad game. It just means that it might not be the most strategic, deep game that is going that, that that's out there right now. And yeah. uh, go ahead. I was going to say one more thing about about playing with a mixture of experienced and inexperienced players as well. Is that it can be quite frustrating because actually. The most experienced player isn't necessarily going to win in that situation because until players understand what the conflicts do and how they change the board and how they scatter points around, you know, they might end up starting a war not really knowing what they're doing. That gives a whole bunch of points to someone because they won that war that they weren't really expecting. Um, and and the, whole, the whole system just gets... Taken up a bit by having someone just just not quite understanding the consequences of their actions. Where once everyone has seen the, the way those conflicts play out and, and got to grips with it, you won't you won't get that so much. So you you know you won't, for example, get someone starting a a conflict between two other players that that gives a bunch of, of points to one of them in a color that they were really struggling with or something like that. You know, so so I think. Um, I think it's a better game once everyone understands the consequences of their actions. All right. Well, I, you know, first thing, uh, Martin, I want to thank you very much for uh, uh, joining me for this episode of The Long View, uh, discussing Tigris and Euphrates. I appreciate you sharing your insights and uh, your strategy tips and, uh, you know, the reasons why you think this game is such a winner and why it's enjoyed the longevity that it's had. And uh, I want to thank you very much for taking that time with me today. Well, thanks very much for inviting me, Jeff. I've really enjoyed it. Not a problem at all. And hopefully I'll get a chance to chat with you again in the future. And uh, uh, hopefully to uh, those people who are out there listening, if you have any thoughts about uh, the the issues we brought up, open and closed scoring, for example, and optimum number of players and beat up on the leader syndrome, uh, I would encourage you to uh, come to either uh, 2d6.org, the generous host of the Longview podcast, and post your comments or suggestions or ideas there, or 
or you can always, of course, follow us on the Guild on Board Game Geek. I also want to uh, mention, I think it'd be remiss if I didn't mention the other generous sponsor of The Long View, GameSurplus.com. Um, you can acquire Tigris and Euphrates, the double scenario edition, right now. Thor has it in stock. Um, you can find them at www.gamesurplus.com, one of the web's premier online board game retailers. Thor and his family will be able to help you find this copy of this game and maybe even the Tigris and Euphrates card game if you have a notion to try that as well. So be sure to check them out and please mention The Long View if you do place an order. So, Martin, once again, I want to thank you very much for your time and for joining me, especially considering it's late uh, your time as we're recording this now. It's about 5 my time, which means it's around 10.30 your time, yes? Yep. So I'm going to let you go to bed, and uh, <laughs> I'm going to thank you uh, once again. So thank you, Martin, and thank you all out there for listening. Good night.